Hi, you're listening to New Home, a podcast that shares with you some of the stories of migrant and refugee women living in regional Victoria. There are thousands of migrants and refugees living across Victoria in cities, small towns and regional communities. This series, New Home, is inviting you to spend a little time hearing incredible stories from women who are putting down roots here in their new home. My name is Ali Hanley, and I'm producing this program from Jara Country, the traditional lands of the Jajawarung. I pay respects to their elders past and present. I also acknowledge the traditional owners from all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lands that you are listening from. Today, I'm sharing a conversation I had with a Thai woman called Duang. Duang also lives on Jara Country in Castlemaine and is well known locally for making amazing laksa, which she sells at the weekly farmer's market. And she's also starting to teach Thai cooking classes. I caught up with Duang in her home, which is also where she teaches her classes. And we sat in her kitchen and had a chat about her life. I came from a very small town in northern Thailand, bordering the Lao border. It's called Nan. When a lot of Australians think of Thailand, they think of the beaches and Phuket. So can you describe that part of Thailand? Nan is in the hills. And up to now, it's been quite remote and not known to most foreigners, not even known to many Thais. Because what I call Nan is that it's a dead-end road. When you get there, there's nowhere else you can go in Thailand. You have to go to Laos beyond Nan. And so it's where some of the hill tribes live and some of the ethnic minorities from who are Thai, but from the hills of Thailand, come and, and stay. It's very much an agriculture place. Now it is self-contained, self-sufficient. But when I was growing up there, we still rely on quite a bit from Bangkok. And as a child, you know, trucks would come once a month and then it was once a week. And I think when I left, it was still once a week that we got things from outside. So what sort of things do you mean? Oh, this is very bad, but it's chemical fertilizer, medicine. Western medicine was beginning to have availability of stuff like penicillin or aspirin, and that only came on a truck because we didn't produce that cloth. A lot of non-people made their own clothes, so there was no clothing store but there were shops that sell cloth. Tell me a little bit about your childhood. My grandparents were from China, and they actually escaped famine in China, escaped poverty to come to Thailand. And both of my grandfathers were 100% Chinese, and they married my grandmothers, both of whom were 50% Chinese and 50% Thai. So... My parents were then 75% Chinese, and therefore I'm also 75% ethnic Chinese. Yeah. And so my parents never said that we were poor, and we always had enough to eat. But they had 11 children because they needed staff. They needed free labor. And so I worked really hard as early as I could. I, de- I never played. Nobody in my house ever played. There's no books in my house. Nothing that my parents would describe as non-productive. So no music, no radios. I was not allowed to play any instrument. I was very interested in playing a flute in school. And I brought home a flute once to practice. 
and my father used it to slap me. We weren't allowed to swim because swimming was considered leisure. And so what was the sort of labor that you did? Did your parents run a farm? My parents were real entrepreneurial. They just did and sold whatever the market needed. And they taught their children to do all different things that would bring in different income. My job was to go tend to a vegetable farm and grow vegetables in order to bring the vegetables to sell at the market. It was expected that the money that I raised at the market would be enough to buy meat, like a quarter of a chicken or one block of tofu if we didn't make very much, or something like that to bring home for the whole family to eat for the day. Yeah. So I did that from maybe before I even remember going to school. And then when I went to school, like kindergarten, I did that before going to school and then get dressed and go to school, come back home, go to the farm to tend to the vegetable, get it up and bring it back. So that was my life up until almost the time I left. It sounds like quite a sparse and difficult childhood, but I wonder if you felt that at the time, especially given that your grandparents had left China due to a famine and starvation. Yes, they definitely felt like we had abundance. But they would also remind us that we couldn't waste anything because our grandparents didn't have enough to eat. I never felt like I didn't have enough to eat, but I felt like I had to work all the time. Were your grandparents all living in the same village as you? No, I never met any of them. They didn't live for very long. Yeah, so by the time I'm the ninth child of 11, and so by the time I came, all of my grandparents had died. So what happened as you grew up? Did you finish? Was there high school available for you? So I loved going to school as a child because it was the only one place where I didn't have to work because none was still quite remote and, and closed up. The school subscribed to a magazine, one magazine, and I would read this magazine from front to back and back to front and front to back. And it was through this magazine that I knew that there was a world outside. And so this magazine was my window to what the outside world was like. And I was extremely curious because I had never left. I'd never been in a car. There was no cars in my hometown, no electricity, no running water. Yeah. But there were schools, more than one, that went from kindergarten to high school. What made you first leave your hometown? Because of this magazine. So the magazine was my window into the world, and I lived to leave. My goal in life was to leave this little town and go explore all these places that I read about in the magazine. So in the magazine, there was a competition. Is that a word, a competition? To sit for an exam to go to America as an American field service scholar. This was an initiative that was started by John Kennedy, the president, and he invited high school students from all over the world to study in America for one year with a contract that after one year, they had to go back to where they came from, not to siphon off the brains of the world. And so I sat for this exam and I won. And by that time, my father had died. If my father was alive, I wouldn't be allowed to even bring the subject forward. And I convinced my mother to allow me to go. And the the scholarship paid for my trip to go to America. 
And so I went to America to study for one year, and then I came back. It was exactly what I wanted it to do, was just to open my my mind to what else was available. And I left Nan without having been inside a car and got on the plane. For the first time, I left Nan. I went to Bangkok to get on the plane, and the plane landed at John F. Kennedy Airport in New York. And it was New York that I spent one year. What an extreme difference between a town that has no vehicles and no electricity to New York. I thought I died and went to heaven. I, I was just, I was, I was beside myself the whole year. Wow. Yeah. And so can I ask what year this was? It was 1965. So it's 1965, you're in New York. And a lot of people, I imagine, from your situation would have been completely overwhelmed, but you're saying that you loved it. I loved it. I was overwhelmed, but in a joyful way. Yeah, in a joyful way. I, I had a Jewish family that hosted me for that year, and they were really into the arts. In fact, the first weekend that I arrived, they invited me to go and do an usher job at an opera. <laughs> and I had never heard of the word nor the concept, nothing, but I went. And for the first summer, I worked as an usher in an opera in Woodstock. This is the child that wasn't allowed to have any instruments. <laughs> so you can understand why I felt like I, I died and went to heaven. Mm. Yeah. In your education back in Thailand, had you learned English? I did. I went to a missionary school. And I learned English, but I, I was very good at writing and reading English, but I never spoke in English. So I didn't hear English, and I didn't hear myself speak, and it was difficult in that year. I also went to high school in New York and completed my year 12. But I remembered when the teacher gave us a book to read and say, you have to report back on this book next week. And I thought, this would take me a whole year to read, you know. But many friends helped me. Mm. And even though I struggled, it was good. I didn't have vocabularies for math, for example, mm. in English. Because I could do math, but it was all in Thai. After one year, I went back home. And this is where I experienced extreme culture shock. I thought that I was bigger than my pants. I thought I was so, so wise and so good and too good to go back to Nan. And I actually suffered a lot emotionally and mentally during that year. So much so that I was looking for another opportunity to go back abroad because I, I couldn't stay in Nan anymore. And my parents, as well as my brothers and sisters, did not support me going to, on further education, tertiary education. So I, I sat for another exam with the Rotary International and got a scholarship to come to Adelaide to study nursing for four years. So I did that. And I completed my nursing degree, met my current husband, and after four years, I left to go back to Thailand. I did get married. We just met. And then we went our separate ways. Yes, yes. Then I went back to Thailand and I taught nursing for a year. And during that year, I met a professor from America. And I was his translator while he was working in Thailand. And I ended up getting another scholarship to go study in America in psychology and another BA in nursing. So I went to university in the U.S. and then I, I didn't come home for 35 years. <laughs> I didn't leave yeah, for 35 years. 
And so where did you end up in the US and, and what kept you there? I married an American who later studied medicine and practiced medicine. He went to Stanford. After Stanford, we went to Seattle where he practiced. And I found Seattle to be very accommodating for me. And I, I did a number of things in, in Seattle, teaching English to refugees. This was then in the early 80s. And Vietnam War had just finished. And so the Southeast Asian refugees were flocking to America. And I got very involved in the resettlement process for the refugees. I taught English. I started some farming practices for the refugees. What happened was that we had an influx of Hmong and Mian refugees who didn't have a written language. And for them to integrate into the American way of living was very difficult. And their children were reading and writing and doing very well in school. And the parents were feeling like they've lost it. You know, they, they've lost their stature in the community, in the family. And they became quite depressed. So a few friends of mine who were also teaching English as a second language and I got together and said, it's not right for us to just teach English because one, they were not interested in speaking English and two, the other side of their well-being was compromised through us trying to teach them. So we wrote lots of grants to the city, to the state, to the federal government to try to get some land for these people to farm because they know how to farm beautifully. And the city of Seattle gave us, I think, I can't remember what it was, 200 or 500,000, enough that we were able to buy acreage of land that nobody was using at the foothills of the Cascades. Mm -hmm. And we relocated our students to go on this land and let them lose so they can farm. But in those days, we didn't have a we didn't have a strategic planning. We didn't have a long view of what we want to do. We just solved one problem at a time. So they were farming and they were making they were growing a lot of vegetable, but we didn't know what to do with the vegetable. And I think we had to come up with, we said, oh, now they have vegetables. How do we make them self-sufficient so that they can sell these vegetables? And so an idea came and we thought we could just get our teachers to subscribe to the boxes of the or bags of the vegetables that people bought. So teachers bought in chairs, you know, they gave us money up front. We didn't know that there was a name or community supported agriculture in those days. But this money came in and the the refugees were able to use this money to plow more into the land, buy some a few equipment and seedlings the following. And so that that was how it started. And so then it spread to the friends of the teachers and my friends and friends of friends and friends. I was involved with the refugees pretty pretty intensively for about 12 years, from the early 80s to the mid-90s. And then everyone was kind of on their feet, and I felt like I needed to, to go do something else. So I, I became a counselor. I studied. I went to back to school got a graduate degree in counseling, and I did a little bit of counseling 
And then I started my own business. And in my own business, I employed refugees to work. And so I, I always stay quite in touch with the refugees and saw quite a few families succeed in America. For example, I knew a family of Vietnamese people whose grandparents, I care so much to help their grandparents because the kids were very easy to integrate into American culture, but the grandparents and the parents had problems. So this particular family was making tofu, and they were able to make so much tofu that it was more than they could eat. So I started them on a small business, and now, today, they supply all the supermarkets in Seattle with their fresh tofu, and the family is flourishing, you know. But that was just one of a few. So I was very proud, and watching all this, all my students succeed in business, I thought, oh, I should go do business too. And then I could employ those who don't want to start their own business in getting on their feet. What brought you back to Australia? You, you spent 35 years in the U.S. Well, in 1997, I happened to bring my family, my children and my then husband, back to Adelaide to, to meet my friends and my family. And I met with my first love, Rob, who flew in from South Africa for this party. We reconnected again. And it was surprising how much, how much fire I still had for this man, Rob. Back when you were in your early 20s and studying nursing here in Australia, you guys had dated. You weren't just friends. We dated, yeah. Had you left your first husband at this point when you re-met him? Rob went back to South Africa to work and I went back to America and continued what I was doing. And two, three years later, my marriage ended. I, I have to say, though, it had nothing to do with my meeting with Rob. My marriage ended in 99, and then a couple of years later, I reconnected with Rob. And we would meet at a mutual place somewhere. That's not either in Seattle or his home. Then we spent so much money commuting that we decided, oh, we should just settle down somewhere. He had come back to Melbourne and was working in the city. I was 60 years old. And so you'd spent your childhood in Thailand and then... 35-odd years in America, and when you moved to Australia again, even though you'd had four years here, was there still a culture shock? I was adjusted to Western living. I forgot how Australians spoke. So there was a lot of good day. <laughs> I think the part that really jarred me was because I had worked so much with the refugees in, in America, and I felt that my students or my clients or my friends who were refugees were extremely well supported all the way from the federal government down to the state government to the city government to friends and neighbors. That when I came here, there was such a bipolar or almost of the support because my friends, the people that I moved around, were very sympathetic and kind and compassionate towards refugees. But the federal government was so mean and so unkind to refugees, that, that really upset me. It upset me watching the news. It really upset me about turning back the boats in a way that I think was, my reaction to that was, I thought, more than most of my friends here. And it might have to do with the contrast of where I had come from. So that bothered me until about three weeks ago. 
mm-hmm. when the election happened. And now I'm hoping that I will get over that trauma. Yeah, yeah. I was actually traumatized by that. I felt deeply sad mm-hmm. and mad. It's an interesting split, isn't it? Because we do still see that split in the American culture as well. There's those who want to build the wall yes. and keep the Mexicans out. And then there's those who are very sympathetic. And obviously there's levels of support in the American community. And maybe Seattle just happened to be a very open place to that yeah. within America. Yes. And in Australia, you see the same. You see communities that are very much turn and pack, get them out, you know, mm-hmm. and others who are very sympathetic. I guess I, you, you're right. You're right. The one thing is that I left before Trump. Mm-hmm. And I left actually during George Bush era, and I thought he was the worst until until Trump came. Yeah, I don't know. I think that I have absolutely, my attitude has definitely turned a corner after the election night. I'm joyful and I'm hopeful now. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about where you feel at home, about exactly this location, because I know you've spoken about it being Jajarang land. Yes, this is another contrast, I think, between living in Melbourne. When I was in Eltham, I wasn't aware that I was in a place where the First Nation people once lived. That wasn't, you know, on the surface or within my consciousness. But once I moved here to Kasamein, I really welcomed the sense in Kasamein that people here are quite attached are quite yeah connected with the First Nation people who live here, with the Jia Jia Wurong people. My practice as a Thai, I was taught, and I think many Thais were taught, that wherever you go, you respect the spirit of those who were there before. And so when Rob and I bought this house, I had a spirit house that I brought from Seattle, and I wanted to locate it somewhere. And I had a brother at home who was going to help, who was helping me find a place on this land to, to set it. So I've set it in that corner, which is a northeast corner of my house, facing the home. And it reminds me every day that I'm actually living on Jajawarung land. And even though it is a structure, it grounds me to the fact that my awareness that I am on someone else's land and that I'm surrounded by the spirits of people whom I respect and love who have made a difference in my life. Do you feel at home here in Australia or do you still feel like you've got homes elsewhere? I'm very at home here in Australia, especially here in in Kasabin and definitely here on this piece of land. But the essence of me is Thai. I am a Thai person who feels very much at home. Do you still feel America is home in a way? Not so much. My children are there, and some <laughs> I miss America when I when my shoelaces broke, and I don't know where to go to buy a pair of shoelaces. And I thought if I was in America, I would know exactly where to go to buy a pair of shoelaces. But yeah, in Australia, I don't know where they sell this. <laughs> it's only it's only that kind of instance that make me miss <laughs> the U.S. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just those little things. Yeah. Sometimes I think many Australians take things so seriously, they can. It's not so hard for people here to let go. You know, just accept changes. Whereas I think Thai people are much more easygoing, and I don't know whether that has to do with Buddhism, mm-hmm. where ultimately we believe everything changes. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. 
Yes. Internationally, Australians are known as easygoing, but you're saying that we're, we're not as easygoing as time. Yeah. And, and many Australians that I know, I think, resist change, and I thrive on change. So, Duang, you're known around here for your excellent laksa and other dishes that you sell at the weekly farmer's market, and also for the cooking classes you've started to run here in your home. And after hearing about your life and how far you've travelled and all the different places you've lived, I guess I'm just wondering if there's, there's more that you want to do. I, I feel like this is the, the last stage of my life in a good way, in that whatever it is that I want to share, I better do it now. And one thing I really want to share is the, the kinds of things I know about food. And since I've been involved with it, since, you know, the market days in the, when I was five, I've made a lot of mistakes and, and I've learned a lot. And I just want to share that. But more than mistakes and successes, it is how I have acquired my love of food. And I wanted to, to impart that. And I'm so fascinated that from at five years old, you're at markets, and now at 75, you're back at yes. markets. Yes. <laughs> so, so there's something to be said about a circular life and not a, a ladder climbing life. So I haven't gone very far up, but I've gone around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I feel really good about that because, you know, I thought about I'm going back to Thailand for a month in July and thinking about maybe starting a cooking school in Thailand that's not taught by me but to feature those who know more about food. And I'm thinking, gosh, I really haven't gone very far. You know, all these years I'm coming back, 70 years, and I go back to my village. But it really makes me feel good rather than bad because I'm going back now as an elder. Yes, and then, as in there is a place for an elder in, in Thai society. And I think for those five-year-olds who hadn't left Nan yet, I'm looking at them and say, there's a life for you, and I can't wait to tell them that. Thank you for listening to New Home. I hope you enjoyed Duang's story. Follow this series in your favourite podcast app to get new episodes or visit sbs.com.au slash newhome. If you'd like to get in touch, email newhome at sbs.com.au. The series was created and produced by me, Alison Hanley, with assistance from Ginny Tan and additional editing by Max Gosford. SBS is Australia's most trusted multilingual broadcaster. Our listeners are loyal, highly engaged and have supported countless local businesses. We offer advertising packages for businesses of all sizes. Our experienced sales team will guide you through the process of owning a great campaign. Bring your own ad or have our production team make you something in one of our 68 languages. Start the conversation with your new audience today. Email sales at sbs.com.au.